You're listening to Boston Strongcast, a place where we talk all things powerlifting, strength, and the occasional scientific nerd session. I'm your host, Kevin Can, the owner of Precision Powerlifting Systems, strength coach and competitive powerlifter in the USAPL. Thanks for tuning in, and let's get stronger together. Hey guys, this is Kevin Can with Boston Strongcast. I'm joined for a second time. Uh, we actually had Mike Amato on the podcast. It was like one of the first five, I want to say, um, back in the old gym days. Um, oh, yeah. oh, yeah. Right? Like probably about a year ago. I think it was like pretty much a year ago. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So we're celebrating our one year anniversary. So, Mike, I'll have you give a um, brief little, like, background on yourself. Um, And today, we're going to talk about um, dynamic skills theory, basically, and um, dynamic systems theory. And what, you know, I think one of the things that often gets lost in powerlifting, because it's not a complex sport like throwing a baseball or or basketball or some of these other field sports is how important like technique might be. And as coaches in a sport that like, there's not a lot to say that I feel in a lot of cases, we our ego driven selves end up doing the majority of the coaching instead of actually like laying some nice groundwork for the lifter to actually learn the lifts themselves through that self-organization organizing piece. Um, so Mike, yeah, a little background on yourself and we'll just get right into it. Yeah. So, uh, I think last time we talked, I was still working downtown. So, uh, since then I moved, I am now working at, uh, Boston PT alumnus at, uh, Zach and Steph. who I think you've had Zach on the podcast before, right? Yeah, I have. Yeah. So I'm up there now, uh, in Winchester, Mass. Um, and I would say now I'm working with a little bit of different population, working with a little more like youth athlete plus general pop and adult fitness and adult athletes. But, um, yeah. And, uh, I worked there 40 hours a week doing PT. And then I would say over the last year, I definitely have shifted a little bit of my learning focus to what we're talking about today. So I'm excited to kind of dive into it. Yeah. So let's, let's get like right into it and basically just give kind of like, a little like background information of like where these systems, where these theories come from and kind of um, maybe how you use it in a, in a rehab setting. And then we'll get more into like the strength training component of it. Yeah. So I, I kind of came around to it in a, like kind of like a backwards way. Maybe um, I had learned about dynamic constraint based theory briefly um, a while ago. Um, and essentially the basis of it is that, you know, you can't just separate the task from the person and the environment in which it takes place. So there's a lot of interacting variables about how the environment and the person's like past experiences and skill level will dictate their skill and their, um, their performance of a given task or activity. Um, but I didn't dive into it too much at that point. And then what kind of changed my focus and kind of the way I came back around to this um, more overarching kind of framework is learning more about predictive processing and essentially how the nervous system interacts with the organism and the environment. And so the basis of all of this is that I would say a large assumption of what people think how action and movement works is that 
the person has like a goal and the goal is to accomplish a certain like task or movement and that the, you know, the executive control has this goal and then selects the motor program. And then based on the performance, you can get some feedback on whether or not the performance was within what you wanted to do or if there's error. And then that feedback would loop back into like the brain, which is what people kind of think of. And then you would correct that error and the next, either the next movement or the next sequence of movements would be corrected. The, uh, the issue with that is that uh, when they do like the studies, which are pretty like clever studies that are hard to kind of get into on the podcast, but um, it's too slow. Like that would be too slow of a learning process and too slow of an adaptation that when they actually do some of these motor control studies, they're seeing the error correction happens faster, almost like before the error even occurs. Um, And so the way to think about it is rather than having the movement be selected as a program and then getting feedback, the body is already predicting what the movement is going to feel like. And so action happens as a consequence of like proprioceptive prediction. Um, And I think that's what kind of, when you think about it like that and you flip it on its head, um, it kind of makes sense and why you see the things you see with motor control and error correction and like um, learning over the course of in a session and over a couple of sessions. Um, So then briefly from there, what that would mean is like, in like layman's terms, like if you're going to squat, the way your body like is going to perform the squat is it has an idea of what a squat is going to feel like through the entire movement. And then that kind of carves out a path for your body to follow. And if it deviates from that proprioceptive prediction, it'll either bring it back to it or change the prediction to update what the squat should feel like. So let, let's actually stay on this topic for a little bit. Um, yeah. How would something like fear um, affect those predictive processes? Because for me, when I started like, so you actually introduced me to these concepts. However, mm-hmm. um, within my first year of coaching powerlifting, Kerry used to be scared of squatting two plates. And like I as a coach, I'm seeing this. It's like, she's capable of so much more, but her fear is like legitimately stopping her from being able to do this. And like the way that I was running programs, it was like all sub maximal volume. And in my head, I'm like, this is just not going to work unless she's not scared of two plates anymore. So one of of the things that we did is I literally put her under two plates all the time, like every opportunity I got. Um, But I, I want you to kind of explain how like maybe fear, um, or lack of confidence or, or some negative emotions might actually hinder um, the motor control patterns. Yeah, and that's, I think that's the cool thing about this framework or this model is that when you, it's not just action, um, it's kind of an overarching model for almost like how the entire nervous system works. So it's fair game for anything to affect the prediction and the prediction is based on like prior experiences, emotions, um, like so many variables. And the tricky part is just because everything matters doesn't mean you address everything. You have to kind of figure out the person in front of you. Um, but it's that fear, um, 
is part of your prior experience that can easily affect the prediction of how it's going to feel like because your body is going to want to or you are going to want to find the easy way out in kind of like a in a kind of layman way and the, your body's looking for a way to like minimize surprise is probably the best way i can, uh, can explain it yeah, I think one of the things that I see when people get scared, right, is like they end up taking this safer approach, right, where they'll yep. slow down the squat, they'll cut it a little bit high. Um, so like normal variables that just aren't there, like that, that fear literally changes their, their skill level within the lift. It's almost like they become more of a novice than, than where they already are placed upon that like spectrum of skill acquisition. Yeah, they, it can become like this self-fulfilling prophecy, which we see a lot in, pain, in terms of like pain. And so like if you have fear of this certain like movement or task or load or whatever variable it is, and you go into it with that preconceived notion, even if it's like subconscious, like you could, you could be like hyped up and, you know, be like, oh, this is the day I'm going to nail it. And then two plays go on and you're like, oh, we're back. And, um, and if you have that experience again, it'll just keep building that probability of experiencing that again in the future. The ironic part of that is injury is the number one leading risk factor for more injury. Yep. And you know, if your workloads are getting up to those, to those numbers and you're constantly getting, getting injured at those numbers, like finding a way to stop that cyclical process, I can imagine from a rehab perspective is extremely difficult. Oh yeah, it's very tricky. It's like, it's all about trying to figure out what's maybe in somebody's conscious control and what's maybe not in their conscious control. And like, this is where like the dynamic systems theory comes into play because you're having to, you're having to do things a little bit, um, like kind of under the radar in terms of how you construct, again, the environment and the task to accomplish the goal that you want out of the client or patient. Yeah. And like the tricky part of that is right. Is not everybody is the same person. Right. So like, yeah, what might work for you is not going to work for me. And like, even then, like trying to change somebody's mind, you know, if they have like this really strong belief that squatting is bad for the knees or something like that, like it's extremely difficult to, to decrease that, that stimulus at those times. Like I, you know, I know like in the past, like some lifters, like it just doesn't work out well under those conditions because I just can't get them to, to buy into that as being an actual, um, piece of it and it's never going to work and like you know in some cases just kind of punt I guess um do you have any like ways that you know you try to poke the bear a little bit so maybe somebody who you know TRX squats or something like that if their knees hurt while squatting and try to like change yeah. the beliefs and stuff but like how do you go about a difficult patient or client in in that type of scenario yeah so it's not going to be like a quick process. I think that's like the biggest thing I try to get across in the beginning is that like, you know, like kind of understanding where they're coming from and how they want to go about it. So like I try to get as much information from them as possible. So it's like, what are your expectations going into this? Like, how do you see this uh, succeeding? Like how, what, what plan do you envision? And like, where do you want to see yourself in 12, 16 weeks? Cause then like, if I get a, 
better understanding of where they're coming from, then I can maybe ask more questions or shape it in a way that they kind of maybe come to it themselves where it's like, you know, in, in the knee pain example, it's like every time I squat, I have knee pain and I'm like, well, how do you think we're going to you know, go about this? Like what, what do you envision as, you know, a success or how are we going to get you to that point? And if, you know, if they're coming from it, from a totally other perspective than myself, then it's going to be a, like a slow process. But if it's something in a line where they're like, well, you know, I, I think I need to get my legs stronger. And I'm like, okay, great idea. Like, I, I agree with you, but like, you know, one of the best ways to get your legs stronger is eventually squatting. We may not be there day one, but we can build up towards it. And then you're like, again, kind of selecting the right tasks that would decrease that threat. So like you said, like a TRX squat, or if it's someone higher level where it's like, you know, it's only barbell squatting that hurts. So I was like, all right, then why don't we just like goblet squat for like a month? You know, what's the, there's no harm in that. You know, we're going to get you stronger and then kind of build up to those heavier loads. And what we see in terms of like these theories about the predictive processing is that you're trying to almost outweigh the older probability so you're trying to like build a new probability of them experiencing success um given that task of let's say squatting so it doesn't happen overnight it's gonna take like months essentially i think uh, where people because i know for me like I, I i misunderstood this this component of it before i'm going to talk more from a skill level like a yep. uh like one rep max squatting type of thing or deadlifting, benching, whatever, um, is that if they have, let, let's just take somebody squatting, their chest is falling forward, coming up out of the hole. Right. And this is how they've accomplished those tasks before. And in a lot of cases, I think, you know, they weren't prepared for the loads. Right. So like ways that the environment has actually shaped how they squat now. Right. So like mm-hmm. their body shifts around to be able to actually accomplish the task. Right. If the weight's too heavy for their, legs to remain upright or their skill level to remain upright in the squat, they're going to find another way to be able to accomplish that task. So you do a bunch of weight that's too heavy. Um, you know, what this does is, is it's not an unstable movement pattern. That is their stable movement pattern. And so everything's temporary. So the body actually will move from stable pattern to stable pattern. So you need to find ways to discourage and destabilize that first pattern while trying to change the predictive processes to make a, what I would consider as a coach, a more optimal pattern to move heavier weights. Um, and it's, it, it's a lot more than just saying chest up or knees out or, um, you know, me actually trying to lead them to squat in a more optimal position. So like, you know, for me, I'll use a lot of, um, variations that punish that position. So if you have to pause on the halfway up, you're just not going to be able to do it. If you're in such a shitty position, um, you'll, you'll literally fall over. So it, it literally has to change some of those predictive processes and stuff. Um, you know, the problem with, and I think this is where like the real skill of coaching comes in. Cause this is where it's hard is to do that with somebody who's got a stable pattern of that chest falling forward. I can't load it enough at times for, for it to carry over to something with heavier weights um, because that changes the environment too. the actual absolute load on somebody's back changes the environment, whether it's, it's their, their emotions, gravity, like there are a number of different factors that literally change on, on that one lift. And like, 
it's not easy. Um, and I think this is a good segue into like something that I kind of want to um, cover is like part of this theory is the degrees of freedom problem. So basically, you know, the body and the way, so the way I learned degrees of freedom in school, like this is insane to me. I have literally two degrees in this field and how degrees of freedom were explained to me. It was just, it's all biomechanical, right? That like, yeah. Um, each joint has X number of degrees of freedom and during complex movements, you can kind of add them together and that's how many degrees of freedom there are, which is to a point. However, the nervous system, like you can't separate the mind and the body. It's one thing, right? Mm -hmm. So how I understand the degrees of freedom problem now is the body will actually limit them for tasks that they're not very skilled at, right? So say you're squatting for the first time, the body's going to limit the degrees of freedom. And that's why you're going to look like a baby giraffe trying to squat. And as you start to figure it out, the body kind of um, lets go of some of that uh, restriction and allows for greater degrees of freedom. And you're getting more variability in movement and you're getting um, higher skill level within the lift. So if you could just kind of maybe discuss how that um, concept works. The degree of freedom. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's more, I think it's more infinite and more variable than people think. I mean, there is, there is going to be a constraint on it. Like, it's not like we're like a bunch of octopi uh, floating around in the, in the ocean, but, um, it, to me, it's like how it comes back to the proprioceptive thing. Like how can you get somebody to feel what you want them to feel without like giving them too much of like this conscious, like top down approach. Like you may have to give them like a cue, right? Like, and it doesn't have to be anything crazy, but not falling over in a squat, people have to like kind of predict what that feels like. And that's a hard thing. So it's like, Oh, I'm falling over in the squat. So I need to like be better at not falling over, but they don't know what that feels like yet. So it's kind of like this weird, like leap of faith where you're just saying like, you need to like be less bent over and they're like, okay, but they haven't really understood that yet. So like giving them less, ability to do that is like your job essentially um it's not like that doesn't make it easy but it makes it more efficient and then you can kind of select how much freedom they that they have in that movement is that is that answering your question yeah yeah i think so and i think like one of the things that i've learned is it's making it as opposed to turning it into something that they internalize right yeah so if I tell them chest up, like they're focused so much on that, like internal environment of it, it doesn't mm-hmm. work as well if I tell them to just look up higher, right? Exactly. So if you change those environmental tasks in a manner in which, all right, they're falling forward, but if I have them put their eyes on a different spot, now they're just, they're focused on looking at that, that spot. So it's more like externally driven, their, like, their focal point, and it tends to just work a lot better. Um, and then over time, like you might see their gaze start to come back down, head, head more straight, like whatever it is. And they're more upright in the squat. Yeah. Um, and they've done, they've done lots of studies on like external versus internal cueing and like how the external cueing will drive better performance. Um, and that, that makes total sense. The problem with those studies though is yep, go for it. <laughs> they use sports that I have no fucking idea how those sports are even played. <laughs> So like I was reading one about like cricket where they were telling like they were using cones to try to direct where the ball was hit. 
And like, yeah, yeah. I'm like, I honestly, I can't even picture what's happening right here, but I think I get the concept. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A lot of them are like, I, we play, you know, we only play our own sports here in America, but, uh, um, yeah. And the other, I think the other thing too, that is maybe not picked up on exactly is it's a constant loop. So it's not like this like happens like in one sequence. It's like you're not like predicting and then performing and then getting feedback and then it ends. Like the way you act on the on the error changes the environment and then the environment can then come back and change the action and the action can change the environment. So like this is like the, the popular term in the motor control world is like perception action. So like your perception is driving the action and your action is driving the perception. So it's a constant like stream and looping of information in different levels. So it's not just happening at the brain. Like you said, it's not just mind and the body interacting. It's like there's different levels in the brain, different levels in the spinal cord, different levels in the peripheral receptors in the, in the body. And then it, it can get, pretty complex but it, it makes sense on why we so we see so much individual variability in like performance because yeah. everyone has different bodies and different experiences and i think too it explains the unpredictability of performance right or you know skill level or performance like you can even watch like major league baseball right um, yeah you know pitchers go through these like stretches where like performance sees a, a large drop, right? But these are high, highly, I mean, they're getting paid $200 million to do their job. Like these are highly mm-hmm. skilled athletes who still go through these, like these peaks and valleys of performance. And I think, you know, the understanding that all of these motor tasks are temporary, right? Nothing is permanent. And that you have to constantly be like analyzing and assessing the entire athlete, right? Cause like, you know, I think it's important to develop a relationship with them and kind of, you know, let them know you care for one, but like, so you can understand what's going on in their life, where their head's at, because all of that stuff literally affects the physiological component pieces. And you can't just like forget about it. And I think it's more than just writing an RPE down on a, on a piece of paper, but it's actually having like, I mean, one, they need to trust me too. So like that, that like helps create that trust. Um, yeah, I mean, that's probably all, all I want to go into on the like actual like um, mood side of it. But like there's, yep. you know, the environmental constraints that are placed on the task constraints. There's the actual like individual constraints, like their perceptions, their beliefs, their feelings, all of that stuff. And like juggling all of them and determining which is most important and like how to actually address it is not necessarily um, the easiest thing to do, especially like, Powerlifting can be a kind of intimidating sport at times when you have to put like heavy weights on your back and it, you know, there's this like fine line of, um, building confidence, but at the same time, the things that you could do, like putting more heavy weight on their back to build confidence can actually have a negative effect if they continue to miss reps. Um, you know, it can just like reinforce those fears of the heavier weights. So like finding this balance, um, yeah, this breezy. I think the, the important part is that, like you don't like th- this is not like a perfect system. It's, it's not to like romanticize like human movement and be like, wow, we're so like advanced. Like it, it is pretty advanced, but the, the purpose of it is to like drive action that meets the world and like your 
goals like where you're at so it's like very like efficient and fast um so it's not to mistake it for like oh this is going to be like a autocorrective like self-serving system like it can go wrong that's why people have chronic pain that's why there are you know there's just it's not black and white it's not like good or good or bad it's just it, it, it is what it is <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, this helps explain why like plateaus and performance occur as well too, right? Where like, I think mm-hmm. the, the physiological components of building strength are as dynamic as these, right? So like everything's temporary. So, and like everything feeds into this, this same like funnel at the end of the day that just like produces this, these, these results. But, you know, the, and I think it explains why, you know, in some blocks, even for the same person, right? During some blocks, like you drive volumes, it works extremely well. You try to do it again and it doesn't work at all. Mm-hmm. Um, why certain exercises have a better benefit to one person, but not another. And like what I've started to realize is every learner, and this is where the like principle of individual differences comes in. And I think this is more important than what I thought it was originally is everybody learns at different rates and they learn differently. So an exercise that might work for one person might have a very different effect on another. So like that exercise, it's not necessarily that that like variation of that exercise itself is a um, poor choice for that person. It just might be, have to be tweaked a little bit to get a better result um, from that. So like just, I've adopted this coaching style where like the cueing I use is just more of a reminder. So they know what I mean when I say a word and just lets them know when maybe they're not paying as close attention or they're rushing through things or it's cold and they want to get out of there. Um, but you know, I, I stopped listening so much and just watching from behind and paying attention to what their lifts are doing and like, okay, well this looks like it's, working a little bit, but not so much, but what if I tried this, right? And it's all just kind of like trial and error, right? And it's like, oh, wow, this works really well. This is not working at all. And like, it's just, it's making those day-to-day adjustments because there are so many different things that that go into that, like um, that one one aspect. Um, But at at the same time too, we can't forget about like general loading principles, right? Yeah, I think you're picking up on things that are like that are important, like meeting them where they're at at that moment. Because, like you said, like what worked one month may not work in the next month because they're literally a different person. Like you can't. It's hard to compare. It's like a it's like a case series. Like you can't. It's hard to compare somebody how they were today versus how they were like even yesterday or three weeks ago or four months ago. And you literally have a different person in front of you. Not completely, but um, so it's hard to do that my question would be for you is like, when do you decide to shift? Like, when do you decide, like, or what are you looking for when you see that things aren't going the way you want them to go? So this is the tough part, right? Because like, I, I used to have this belief that if we saw variability in training, that there was, that this was an error and this was inappropriate. Uh-huh. Um, so I, I would adjust training intensities based off of this. Um, so let's say we're doing sets of three at 80%, five sets of three at 80% and all 15 of those reps look different. How I was originally taught was those 15 reps looking different is actually training 15 different movement patterns. Mm -hmm. But I don't believe that that is true anymore. I think error 
is required for learning, right? And that variability is not always a bad thing. It's the difficult part is figuring out whether that's them having that conscious effort to figure things out or if the weight's pushing them around. Um, And those are two entirely different things because I think that if there's conscious effort to do what I'm what they're what I want them to organize to do I'll leave it in there and just see what happens for a couple of weeks like mm-hmm. you know especially if it's a new exercise right because there's always this learning curve you get worse at it before you get better sometimes so like not rushing to things and understanding that the, the, this is a long-term sport and like taking a month and just let, let's see what it looks like if it continues to look worse obviously we'll remove it pretty quick um but I just, I kind of, it's like letting a kid play in a sandbox, right? Like here's this toy, let's see what you do with it. Um, You know, and I'll have like certain markers that I'll keep in there over a period of time. And if it's not getting better, we'll, we'll make adjustments in the next block. So instead of doing it, you know, so much change in exercise really quick because it doesn't look good. I'll leave it in there for a period of time and be okay with the errors that they're um, doing. As long as the errors are, are, there's conscious effort to try to, organize in a way that I want to see for performance. Um, and I think that just comes with experience. So there are times if I see the weights pushing somebody around, drop, drop the weight. Um, and, and we'll build this up over a longer period of time. Yeah. And that makes sense to me. Like I've, that's a big difference I see within myself and even like new grads versus like, um, uh, more experienced clinicians is like the ability to just kind of like embrace and trust the process a little bit longer instead of trying to change like everything, every single session, because then you're just scattershot and you're not seeing, you're not allowing the person to like find the journey on their own. Yeah. And like, I'll tell you, like one of my biggest challenges sometimes is the fucking internet with this stuff because (laughs) yeah, there are people who I coach who I, I want all of my lifters and I feel it's important that they're educated because if they're educated and they understand the why you get greater buy-in, greater results. Mm-hmm. Um, and like having smart lifters, I'm by myself with a large group too. They can help each other out. So there's, there's selfish reason, reasons there too. Yeah. Um, but they'll go on certain people's Instagram pages and like read some, you know, posts about hip anatomy or like, you know, certain, you know who I'm talking about. Certain, yeah, yeah. Um, certain things and it's like, okay, well this session I'm going to try moving my stance closer. This session I'm going to turn my toes out more. This session I'm going to put my feet wider. So they don't do anything consistently long enough where yeah. they can start to develop a skill. It's just constantly moving things around. It's enough information to be dangerous. Like one rep max yeah. between close stance and wide stance squats are very, very similar. Um, for each individual, according to like recent research. And I'll tell you from me moving people's feet around in the squats, they tend to handle similar numbers. Um, yep. You know, they might change some things cause it feels different. Right. So it might move a little slower, like, you know, while they figure stuff out, but typically it's the same. Um, but the, just get into the same fucking position every time and be consistent so that I can do my job. And I think them understanding that it's, embracing the process a little more. And I think in a lot of cases too, I have other lifters who expect every repetition to be perfect in training. I am literally putting exercises in there that shouldn't look perfect because they're going to challenge the positions (laughs) you're lacking. It's going to be frustrating. 
But like, that's what practice is. That's always what it was like playing sports and stuff. It's like, okay, well, here's where things break down. Figure it the fuck out over the next four weeks. Like, but there's a, you know, this, like they'll watch their videos and they get so hung up on the, wow, this looks like shit. This looks like shit. Yeah. I'm literally putting you in a position for it to look like shit and giving you an opportunity to figure it out over a longer period of time. And like, you just got to be consistent. And I think some of those, like, the those issues are some of the biggest challenges that like I face as a coach. I would imagine the rehab setting, it's probably pretty similar. Yeah. It's a, it's like allowing this like flexible path. It's like the metaphor I'll use for people is like, I'm trying to carve out like a wide path. So like you can go lateral, you can go up and down, but at least it's like, we're going in a direction. And like, I think that, like you said, you have to like educate them and uh, get that buy-in. Cause like, if I can, they may not get it that first day. Like I, I might tell them like, there's going to be times when it feels really good. And there's going to be times when it feels really shitty. And we're just going to have to kind of like play with that. Like, it doesn't mean like we ignore it, but we're going to have to kind of like be a little flexible. But at the end of the end of the day, it's, we're just kind of putting another day under our belt. And it's hard. Cause like, hey, that's not very, not very intuitive that doesn't make a lot of sense in terms of like uh the big picture but it the at least from what i see the people who can kind of rationalize that and grasp it better are people who often have an easier process going through it yeah i think you know it's the age of instant gratification right and like I'm going to pick on the younger millennials here um, because it just tends to be like the demographic that I coach, right? Those, you know, you know, I'm a millennial, right? I'm technically a millennial, (laughs) (laughs) but, but like they, they watch these other people getting stronger way faster. And it's like, well, I need, I need to do this now. I need to do this now. I need to do this now. And they don't understand that. Like even that, like, mental attitude literally is going to limit their ability to increase their skill level in training because they're too worried about chasing other people as opposed to just, you know, doing what they're supposed to do. And I think, you know, the other piece of it is for some reason, a lot of like analytical people are drawn to me. And so like they need to run the program. If it says 85% for doubles, we need to run 85% for doubles. Um, We can't go less. We can't go more. Like that's what the program says. And if you're just following a program or you have a coach that's just writing a program, you're just following the numbers and not taking into consideration all of these other variables that actually play into your performance on a day-to-day basis, like you are, you are missing out immensely on strength gains. You could be increasing injury risk. Like there are things that go into this more than just um, the mechanical stress aspect of it. And I think people miss that mark a lot. Um, And I think there's like two camps with this. There's people who chronically underload. And then there's people who just, for some reason, every, every week, it's just, we got to add more volume because seven days is some magical number that your body Mm -hmm. adapts to certain um, variables and you just move on from there. Um, And like, this is where like the art of blending everything together comes in, whether it's in rehab or it's in sports performance. Um, But it's finding a way to take all this stuff into consideration. And um, I'm curious how you guys, so like, you know how I do things. Um, so upon mm. entering the gym, there's a simple one to five mood scale that people 
put on the sheet and we write down last set RPs just so I can judge how hard it feels for, for you guys. So I get like general mood and general like feelings of weights. Um, and like you said, like this doesn't necessarily change the loads I put in the bar or any of that stuff. It, it's, it's something I keep in mind um, and take into consideration. Um, like my fear is if I have people put more info down, it makes them more aware of things that might not necessarily negatively affect training. So for example, Oh shit, I only slept six hours last night. I'm going to be tired. Maybe my performance will decline or, or maybe I didn't eat as much. Um, where like these two parameters probably that day wouldn't affect training at all. Uh, it's important to keep in mind, like nutrition's important, sleep's important, all of that stuff. Um, but how do you guys in the rehab setting go about, assessing each individual clients like other their internal factors yeah um it's a good question because like they're it comes back to like the perception is like a prediction so like you can shape the perception like very easily um so a lot of like what we talk about at the clinic is kind of creating this like different different atmosphere than people were, than people are used to in terms of like a medical culture. So um, it's definitely a little more lively. It's definitely a little, little more collaborative of an environment. So people get that right off the bat. So when they come in, it's not like I take their heart rate and then ask them zero to 10 what their pain is. I'm like, Hey, how was your weekend? Or, you know, what's going on? Like, you know, I try to remember something about their personal life. So like, you know, oh, how did that, you know, interview go or, you know, your daughter was in town, right? That way I kind of get them like more on like a person, the person level and I can kind of feel out what kind of mood they're in. Cause if they're just like, uh, you know, shrugging me off then like, all right, I'm gonna have to like play this a little bit, you know, a little more subtly, but if they're coming in and they're like just talkative and happy, then I can, I can kind of just get into it with them and like, all right, cool. And like, how are you feeling the progress is going? Like, are you able to focus on the exercises and the program I gave you? That's why I'm not like asking them specifically about like what's wrong. I'm asking them like, how are you? How do you feel like you're able to kind of stay on top of this? Do you have any questions? Like, are there, are there things that are not going the way you envisioned it? So it's like, I'm just getting a better idea of what their experience and expectations are like continually. So let's say yeah, let's say they come in in a bad mood, right? Or they yep. just like are really down because maybe they had a, a step back in the rehab process or something. Mm-hmm. Um, would you try to set things up in a way that would kind of try to switch the tracks a little bit to try to get them? So let's say like on a mood scale, they come in at a one to even yeah. try to improve that to a two or a three in the training session. And then, you know, maybe from there make those adjustments and like load a little bit more or something. Yeah. It, it depends on the person. Um, and I definitely have always a few of those and the, some of them are just like, like that all the time. And so like one, I'll validate them, you know, like if either they're having a setback or they're in personal life is not going that great, even separately, then I'll be, you know, I'll, I'll acknowledge that I'm like, that's hard. Like I understand, like I don't understand completely what you're going through, but I can understand like that's challenging and hard and that's not the most ideal scenario at this moment. But what's important is to like figure out like what can we do right now? And it may not make a big change today. I think that's the other thing too, is I don't set it up that like we have to fix this now. It's like, we'll embrace that 
and we can make a slight adjustment um, depending on what the issue is. Um, you know, if people want to come in and just work hard and kind of get their mind up something, cool, we'll work hard. If people feel like, yeah, we'll, we'll see how it goes, let's warm up, and then we can get an adjustment for it. And at, you know, after the warm up, I actually feel fine, let's just do it. Um, you know, I kind of set that neutral expectation. Like we don't really know, like if we just kind of start going through the session and it feels fine, let's continue. If we get feedback from the movements or the exercises that it's actually not feeling great, we can always regress today or change it today and we can pick it up next time. And it, it may be better. It's not like a make or break. It's almost like, almost like kind of trivializing like the day to day. It's like, it's important, but it's not the end all be all. Yeah. I think, you know, you made an important point where it's like, it's, it's knowing the person a little bit personally. Right. So like for me, if yeah. somebody comes in and they're in uh, just a down mood or like, you know, feeling a little sore, a little tired, like that changes one, the demeanor in which I'll coach them. So I won't like berate them on, on something that I know they should be doing or like, <laughs> you know, I'll be a little more like, like telling jokes. I'll be a little more positive with my feedback than I typically would. Um, mm-hmm. And in a lot of cases, like sometimes they just need to see their lifts and realize that, Oh wow, this is moving. This is moving pretty good. And like me pointing out the positives as opposed to if they came in in a good mood and like, we're in a good groove or something, maybe I'll point out some of the negatives in their in their video. Um, so like some of that stuff or like, you know, there are some people who, I'll do something to gain them confidence. So something I'm 100% sure that they can do when they're feeling down or something. Um, so like, this is a good example. Like Doug had come in. Um, he's like squats the last few weeks. I've been feeling like shit. Everything just feels heavy. He had triples at like 80%, which was like 335. He takes the first one. He's like, he's like, same thing. He's like, God, these feel like garbage. It feels so heavy. I didn't put 30 more pounds on the bar and take an AMRAP. He hit, 365 for a set of seven and he comes out of that and he's and like the next training day is like squats are feeling really good like it changed that like perception of how the squats are feeling for him that was negatively holding back his training from putting the right weight on the bar at times because there are times where he has to train away from away from me um so and like just having that down mood and stuff while going into squats is not effective so like i put more weight on the bar had him do something that I, I knew would just kind of like blow his mind and change that perception where there are other people who I can't do that same thing with, right? If they're feeling down and I load another 30 pounds on the bar, which is 7% for Doug or something like it's a big jump. So yeah. if I load weight like that on the bar for somebody else, they'll just, they will literally miss a rep cry for three days mm-hmm. and, you know, quit powerlifting over that period of time. So like, <laughs> you know, for them, that might be just more like positive reinforcement on the weights that we're currently using, or maybe making a small jump and taking the same reps. Um, but like, I'll take it into consideration, but every single person is a little bit different in how they're going to respond to that. And like for RPEs, for me, like most people be like, most coaches will see an RPE nine and maybe they want less intensity or something. But if you look at a set, sometimes a lot of times, like I'll see last set RPE nine, right. But you're looking at it and it looks like, like your singles, Mike, my, yeah, looks like, my singles, <laughs> it looks like an RPE four. So yeah. like in a very short amount of time after taking that single, you took a set of three at the same weight. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's just trying to, you know, 
I take yeah. it into consideration. It doesn't necessarily mean, oh, we're getting near a max weight. It's, okay, I need to show them. And like, this is a skill every beginner needs to learn. I need to show them that this really isn't close to being a, a max weight. So let's like, but I didn't just the next training day throw you under 300 pounds and ask you to take it for a triple. Like there's this like no. working up process yeah. to it. Like you touch some weights in between for more reps than you take and you yeah. kind of get like a nice little rhythm. And then when the timing's right, you, you throw that weight on the bar. So like, you know, this just gets back to what I was saying before. If you're just following like the mechanical stress concepts of strength training, you're missing out on a lot of like valuable other pieces that can actually propel training forward. Um, and progress can happen in a, in a much better, um, manner well yeah and, and that was like the main reason i work with you because I, I was like i need someone to push and pull me because i have my own ideas of what is hard and what is appropriate but that's just me and i and having somebody else kind of see and kind of bounce almost bounce it off of you then they could put you a little bit outside your comfort zone but in a good way yeah yeah no exactly and there's like there's obviously that fine line that you need to tread with um with that type of stuff. And like, you know, you just need to keep in mind that like loading strategies need to be appropriate as well. If you've only taken that for one single in your entire life, like there has to be a working up process load management wise to be able to handle that intensity for a triple. Exactly. Um, so like, you know, it's not just like you take somebody's feelings and emotions and that's everything, right? Like all of this stuff matters. So adequate volumes, adequate average intensities, all of that stuff still needs to come into play and you need to structure training in a way that encourages learning and rehab too, that encourages learning as well as loading enough to, to get stronger. Cause doing one high bar wide stance, pause squats, not making your squat better. Like there has to no. be adequate volumes, adequate intensities, and, and then it's to be managed well over a period of time. Um, but understanding those concepts can help you construct that environment for learning to happen a little bit better as well. So like for me, I'll pick an exercise that I know you might be really weak at and we would have to under what I would consider underload it um, in terms of carryover for that main lift, but I could do other exercises on other days you know, whether it's a variation, the comp lift itself done heavier that I can actually like maintain those, um, those other aspects of, of training or at least build upon them, um, at, at the same time. Um, I want to get into, um, you know, that, that the biomechanics aspect of it and where it's important, mm -hmm. right? So we're, we're talking a lot about, um, you know, like dynamic systems theory is allowing the person in front of you to kind of organize themselves. Right. And I think this gets misinterpreted as they can just do whatever and they'll figure it out over time. And you see a lot of lifters starting to get stronger with what I would consider less than optimal technique, which at the end of the day will probably give them a lower ceiling on their abilities um, within the sport and then to break apart that bad habit and try to build it back up again is going to be extremely, extremely difficult. So I, I want your input on where biomechanics is important and where in a lot of cases people think it's important, but may not be as important. Yeah. So I think, I think we could make some pretty good arguments for biomechanics and like performance. Um, and this is where it comes into play about like 
the individual, but it always matters in the individual sport. So I, I don't think you can make a broad statement and say like this particular movement needs to look like this for like every human. That's where it doesn't matter as much. I think where it matters a lot is like the individual task and the individual activity. And a lot of like sport activity are things that like we made up and created. So because we made them up and created them, we can actually like make and break the rules about what's probably going to be better for performance. You know, like a powerlifting squat is a made up thing. Like it doesn't exist like outside of powerlifting, Um, you know, but because of, because of the constraint of the rules, you can then figure out based on research, like which, general um, positions are probably going to be a little more beneficial on an average scale. Again, like you're going to have different people. So it's going to be quite, you're going to have some variability in there, but I think that matters on a performance level. And then it's up to the, this is like where I think expertise comes into play is how you can take the evidence and then the individual differences and then blend that all together into directing the performance. So like, you know, the totality of evidence on the things that are important to your field, you see the person in front of you and then you can apply it. And it's, it sounds simple, but it's a, it's a pretty big task. Yeah, it it is a, it is a big task, especially the majority of like for powerlifting, the majority of the people getting into the sport, are getting into it later in life. It's not like being five years old and trying to learn how to play baseball. Like you have a lot of built in predictive processes by this point. And Mm -hmm. um, I think that becomes like the biggest part of like the challenge of teaching a skill. And in a lot of cases, like people have just done it poorly for a period of time because they didn't know any better. Um, In terms of like injuries and like biomechanics and stuff, I, I'm kind of probably in more gray area than most people. Like there's, I think two camps that, you know, biomechanics, um, are everything. If you pull with a rounded back, you're going to get hurt or something. And then there's that other one where biomechanics don't matter at all. And like where I kind of sit on the thing is, you know, and this is just trying to take everything into perspective and what I've seen and stuff. So if we know we need to increase volumes over time, and we're in poor biomechanical positions that disperse that volume amongst less muscle groups and less joints, um, then we're probably going to hit a ceiling a little bit sooner. We just might not be able to handle those loads. And then, you know, that's where injury can um, play into it. But I want to hear your take on the actual like biomechanics process and injury risk. Yeah, I think I think like the position and biomechanics can change your load management, right? So like you can't, you know, um, you probably can't single leg squat, you know, as much volume as you could, um, you know, do a regular squat. Or again, like kind of like a if you want to take the extreme, like a Jefferson deadlift. You, you can't handle as much load and volume doing a Jefferson deadlift as you could with like a flat back deadlift. Doesn't make Jefferson deadlift like a dangerous movement. It just has a lower ceiling, um, which is fine. You wouldn't go into a competition trying to one, one RM your uh, Jefferson deadlift. And so if that's, if that's something I see, um, I may, you know, if that's someone's like go-to method of lifting things off the ground, 
I, I'm probably going to change that, but the way I frame it is going to be important. So I'm not going to go into like, this is bad because it puts more stress on your spine and discs. What I'm going to say is like, well, you know, this is your only movement option or your most predominant movement option. I'd rather you give you more options and like the other options may be more efficient in terms of like you can use a little more leg power and the legs may help you lift more volume or like you know may have you handle more stress and um that will drive down the threat or it'll you know if 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 they have something that they're like hypervigilant about like if they're very anatomically focused like what about you know if they have like a positive mri finding i'm like well then it'll allow that um finding to heal you know i'll play into that a little bit Um, because it does happen you know like tissues do heal we can't ignore that um that's that's kind of the way i i look at as more of like a stress and load tolerance and then changing their perception of the movement into like away from a dichotomy of like dangerous and safe to probably more low tolerable, maybe a little less low tolerable. Okay. So, and I think where coaches need to take this into consideration too, is because all of these other exercises have fluctuations in their ability to load, you need uh-huh. to, when you're writing a program, you need to take that into consideration. Not everything can be loaded equally. So if you're doing a snatch grip, stiff legged deadlift, you probably don't want to be doing five sets of eight at 70% or something like that. Where like maybe a lifter can handle similar volumes um, in their competition deadlift. um, Although that would just be an insane amount of volume regardless. Um, But, you know, certain exercises used to fix these techniques have to be loaded very differently. Like a deficit deadlift, if I'm using, you know, the eight to 10 centimeter deficit, I'm not loading it the same way as I would even something that's three to five centimeters or something from the floor. Um, So there are certain positions that I think don't allow the lifter to tolerate quite as much load. Like you said, like a Jefferson deadlift. Um, Last question I want to discuss. So this is actually something I posed to Chico about accessory work because I'm not entirely sold that, you know, if we just blast the quads, all of a sudden we'll be standing upright in the squat. So like I have, I think accessories are important for just like general overall health, right? That extra like volume at the knee joint just increases your ability to handle, handle loads. Right. And you're changing Mm -hmm. angles stuff like that, which I do feel are important. Um, however, like when I posed this question to him, he said, accessories don't work unless you have those special exercises to fix those technical breakdowns in the program itself. Um, so like, for example, if I'm trying to strengthen the quads in the squat, if that's kind of like my goal, pin squat mixed with, uh, direct quad work would be effective, but just doing comp lifts and direct quad work won't work um, in the same manner. And uh, I just wanted your take on that aspect. Yeah, I I think I would agree with that. Like you, you, you have certain goals or certain exercises and it's not going to be like one exercise fits neatly into one goal because the pin squat still may increase your quad size and strength. But if you 
if you know the goal of the exercise, you should be able to program that to what you want to get out of it. So like the, you'll have like your more skill kind of all encompassing movement, like the pin squat in conjunction with like, I don't know, like leg extensions <laughs> or, you know, leg press and that those things can marry, marry each other. Like the, that, that'll support each other. Whereas like if, cause I've seen this in like other, um, like social media and kind of like, uh, like educational stuff where it's like, like you said, like if you're, you know, if you're falling over in the squat or your hips are rising too fast and your quads must be weak. So we need to blow up the quads. It, it's more complicated than that. Like just having strong quads won't teach you how to like stay upright in the squat. Um, so I think it, you need both. Um, and just from like a, like a hypertrophy perspective, like having bigger muscles is not usually a detractor from the sport. <laughs> so yeah. like, I, I, yeah, I think that's important. <laughs> I mean, look at like, I know like, uh, what Marissa Inda was like a bodybuilder for what, 20 years before she switched to powerlifting. And I, I would have to think that has helped her be at the level where she's at. Yeah. Most Russians were the same, right? They had 10 years of just like GPP, like, straight up hypertrophy gym type stuff, general movement stuff yeah. um, where they get more specific in the sport of powerlifting. And that's definitely like one foundational piece that we don't get here. Um, like I was fortunate enough. I played multiple sports through high school. I played a sport through college and then after college as well. So like I, I had a wide range of different positions and angles and constraints that were like placed upon me to build me a decent foundation to hopefully keep me healthy enough to, um, you know, push some weights later on into life and stuff, um, where I feel the majority of the people who get into powerlifting were the ones picked last in dodgeball. So like, like it's the one, it's the one sport. And this is the cool part of it that everybody can do, but the ones who were doing it through college were doing it because they weren't good at other things. Um, so yeah. they miss out, I think in a lot of cases, building that like solid base and foundation. And I do feel like it, it, you can chip away at it over time. Um, with the competition lifts and stuff in there. And I do feel that that's important for just like, I mean, we know loading builds tendon strength. So like yeah. just in terms of like building a resilient athlete, I think it's important. Like for me, I don't get elbow pain in the squats if I'm doing bicep curls. Um, so like stuff like that, I think it does help keep you healthy and like, you know, knock on wood, I haven't had any knee pain or anything like that. You know, the occasional low back tweak or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but in general, like uh, I've been doing this for three and a half years, relatively healthy the the whole time. I've missed, you know, just a couple of training days. The first time I, I strained my lower back. So, you know, I do think like those types of things are important um, for building a, a resilient lifter. I'm just not sure how much carryover uh, you actually get to it in the main lifts. I do think there's a psychological component. I think the ones who actually like push their accessories and hit them hard, like there's that psychological, I'm not just doing the bare minimum. I'm doing everything possible to get a bigger total. And I think it breeds that like competitive attitude a little bit. Um, so I think a lot of that might just be psychological. Especially at the end of the day, like those accessories are so much lower stress than like the barbell work you put in, put in. So you can hit it hard and it's not really gonna, like, unless you did something really stupid then like, yeah, that might affect your performance. So the next day, but, um, it's a drop in the bucket in a good way, you know, like it's, it's going to add up over time, but it's not going to make or break it like that day. Yeah. And like, you know, one of the things that 
I don't want like the, the lifter to be stiff. So the next day their technique just sucks or they can't push weight, but like, yeah. I, you've seen the accessories. We're not doing anything like super crazy. No. And I, I've done like, and like, again, like you said, like I've done general stuff my whole life. So like I I'm used to like, I, I remember doing pec flies in college. So I was like, all right, let's get back at this. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, um, especially when we look at like, in terms of what you said, like kind of like general preparedness, like, this is a different discussion, but you know, we have really good data on like youth athletics and how not specializing before 18 radically decreases injury and burnout, you know? So that speaks back to like the whole dynamic systems theory and self-organizing. Like these people probably have more options, more experiences, um, just better ability to kind of adapt to the task and the environment given their prior experience. Yeah, and I think, you know, and just to piggyback off that just a little bit, I think like for powerlifting, because the skill level itself is, is it's pretty small, but like having those experiences, I think allows you to get through bad positions, right? Yeah. So like, you know, you're just, you're prepared. So like, you know, the box squats where I have everybody really push their hips back. Like if you ever get pitched forward on a heavy attempt, you've been at these angles before. It's not the first mm-hmm. time you're seeing it. And the first time you're seeing it, you know, having it happen under maximal loads, that's where I think danger could happen as well. So like you're, you're making lifters strong at multiple angles within the competition lifts themselves, just in case bad things happen. Like their body's one, it's been there. So it's, it's got something to draw upon to lock out that weight. And two, it's building tissue resiliency at those angles um, to hopefully keep them upright, you know, after lifts like that. And that's kind of like where I think the importance um, comes into those as well. Not just like in developing skill, but like preparing for when things go bad, because that's going to happen. You're going to get pitched forward in a squat at some point in your life and having something to drop on to be able to lock out the weight is important for performance. And I think, you know, just being strong at those angles, I think is where the actual like real health benefit comes um, from those things. I always like, try to make people think about like being like a, a strong tree that can bend, but not break. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We don't want to bend too much uh, yeah. heavier weights, yeah. but you know, it does, yeah. it happens and you can't be scared of it to happen and you have to be prepared. And I think ultimately that's our job, right? We're preparing them for certain tasks and that simplifies it in a nutshell. So yep. let's uh, tell everybody where they can find you on the, on the internet, Mike, and we'll wrap this thing up. Yeah, I have a Instagram, uh, Michael Viamato. Um, I don't really post a lot, but I'll post some stories and some lifting that I am now under your coaching. So you get to, you know, that's, Hell yeah. that's pretty cool. See some new stuff. And, uh, yeah, I work with Zach Gabor at Boston PT and wellness. So he's pretty active on social media. So you may see my name pop up on his stuff every now and then we, uh, working together with the level up initiative, which is a pretty cool, like a uh, new grad student PT, uh, mentorship. So I do stuff through them as well. Um, yeah. Level up's putting out some great stuff. Um, yeah. Yes. And I'll be doing, uh, I'll be doing more stuff with them and I'll be most likely doing a clinical athlete webinar later this year about more about this stuff. Awesome. Um, can't wait to hear it. Uh, you guys can follow me on Instagram, KWCAN, our team, Precision Powerlifting Systems. Stay strong, Boston.